This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, a president has to sell an unpopular program at home. He has had to lead a country at war, but now tries to pivot to peace. In Washington, his enemies across the aisle lobby hard against him, ginning up discontent in the Capitol and rallying public opinion to their side. The president has to win it back, so what does he do? Takes to the road to sell his vision directly to the people. Is this the story of Barack Obama? No. It's Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States, a man so wooden in our memory and yet so emotional and passionate for his cause when troves of hidden archival material are uncovered by a Pulitzer Prize winning author. 100 years ago, in 1913, President Wilson was inaugurated, capping a meteoric rise that saw him just two years earlier simply the president of Princeton University. Sound like the kind of rapid ascent of an Illinois state senator? It's UN General Assembly week here in New York. Leaders of so many of the nations of that body convene here with parallel events like the Clinton Global Initiative, which brought so many of my old friends to town. It led to a series of dinners and drinks that, well, have left me a bit wobbly by week's end. The vision for this gathering this week goes back to Wilson himself. The president returned from six months in France in 1919, having translated his famous 14 points into the Treaty of Versailles and the grand design of the League of Nations, a fitting end to the war to end all wars. Wilson needed the Senate to ratify that treaty. Sound familiar? The League was supposed to stop the next war before it began but it was also born of his own sense of deep responsibility. Wilson bore a personal burden for the 116,000 dead American boys who fought to make the world safe for democracy. So despite a debilitated state with his health and even his life at risk, Wilson set out on a railroad car across America to sell his plan. An epic presidential trip spanning one month and 29 cities from coast to coast. As a guy who's planned barnstorming trips like this with the aid of Air Force One, Marine One, and motorcades and massive sound systems at every stop, that's not impossible in 2013, but try 1919, and it's literally a killer. With me to recount the trip to end all trips is Scott Berg, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Lindbergh and now Wilson, the heavyweight champion 800-page biography of our enigmatic 28th president. He joins us in New York as Wilson's ultimate vision plays out with all of its legacy challenges, the United Nations General Assembly, here this week. Welcome, Scott, to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Lindbergh in 1998 was a great companion for me while I was working in the White House, living in Washington, D.C., and then I was one of those guys who makes that so frequent migration from uh, Washington, D.C. to Hartford, Connecticut, <laughs> in 2003. And lo and behold, out comes Kate Remembered, the perfect preview for my years there, especially living on the line between Hartford and West Hartford, and then vacationing with friends uh, in Fenwick. So I got to see Kate's house down there. There you were. And, uh, and as the world congregates, uh, as it does every year for the annual uh, General Assembly of the United Nations, not only is traffic snarled behind 
motorcades from heads of state and government, especially the president of the United States. It it impeded your own uh, move to the studio here today. It did. I just saw the president of the United States. I saw his car go by with an entourage of 30 behind him. And I know this was not part of the Wilsonian dream of a League of Nations. Well, uh, we do have the 28th president to thank for that. Um, This is indeed the 100th anniversary of the 28th president's inauguration in 1913, isn't it? That's exactly right. Yes, Wilson was inaugurated 100 years ago this year. We can talk about your writing process all day long. I'm sure that the 10 years or so that it has come up to that has come to to put this uh, work together. But what interested me, I think, found in either your acknowledgments or other writing about your work, Scott, is a guy like me growing up, born in the 60s, growing up in the 70s. A lot of us have that official photo of John F. Kennedy somewhere in our bedroom mm-hmm. uh, wall. But strangely, Scott Berg. Uh, has a photo of the President Woodrow Wilson on his wall. Why? Actually, it wasn't a photo. It was a it was a campaign poster from the 1912 election. I think we've got another Washington, and Wilson is his name. It's because when I was uh, 15, which was in 1965, I read a book about Woodrow Wilson, and I became so enchanted by him uh, that I just started reading more and more. And I've really been reading about Woodrow Wilson all my life, all my adult life, Uh, And I've never been far from a picture of him, in fact. Um, I think it was probably the tragic idealism of Woodrow Wilson that struck me when I was 15. And increasingly, I I think I became more interested in the idealism than the tragedy, although in writing my book, it ended up being a little more tragedy than idealistic, I think. And we're definitely going to get into that, Scott. Uh, Wilson himself the only Ph.D. to occupy the office of President of the United States. While he was at Princeton, writes one of the many biographies of George Washington. As a writer, when you look at subjects like Lindbergh, certainly written about in many ways, uh, Wilson less so, although there's another large biography out there. But when you come across the archival material that you were given or, or allowed access to to write this book, is it sort of a secret trove for you that that ev- anyone can write another book about Roosevelt or Kennedy? But f- this is territory that not a lot of people are interested. But in a writer's in in the hands of a writer like you, you can bring it to life like no one else can. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I was fortunate enough to come across two huge troves of personal papers of Woodrow Wilson that nobody had seen before, and to this day, nobody else has seen. Uh, because the families have really not let anybody into all those papers. But the real reason, the motivation behind my wanting to write the book I did about Wilson is that I wanted to write a very personal book about him. I wanted to write a book that really humanized Woodrow Wilson. Most people who have an image in their minds of Wilson, if they have one at all, is of that very glum Presbyterian minister's son with the long face and the long chin. And that was certainly an aspect of who he was. But what I knew just over the years from my reading and what I really came to know big time doing the actual research on this book was that this was a very red-blooded, passionate, deeply emotional man. And I wanted to write a presidential biography in which that side, the personal side of the man, would then inform what his presidency was like. So... We're going to spend most of our conversation focused on 
probably about six months of the president's life, maybe a year, uh, because you can buy Wilson at Amazon.com from A. Scott Berg and get the the entire breadth of his life from his uh, upbringings in Virginia, the tour of various universities where he taught his movement to Princeton University first as a professor and then as president, his quick ascension to the governorship of New Jersey, but then his election almost in a meteoric way to the president of the United States. Scott Berg, I want to do two bits of context. First, the years leading up to the fact that the U.S. president is then going to decamp to Paris <laughs> for the for the uh, negotiation of the Treaty of Versailles. And then what is a U.S. president doing for six months overseas in Paris? Well, exactly. You you began the story correctly, which is with the most meteoric rise in American history. That is to say, in October of 1910, Woodrow Wilson was the president and a professor at a small college in the middle of New Jersey. In November of 1912, he's elected president of the United States. There's never been anything like it, and it's hard to imagine there ever will be. He then, in his first term, uh, passed first of all presented and then advanced the most progressive agenda the United States had seen and really wasn't surpassed until Franklin Roosevelt came along. And so that really took up most of the first four years in office. At the same time, World War I was just breaking out, and President Wilson did everything he could to keep this country out of that war. Indeed, he ran for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. But by 1917, it seemed inevitable, and it seemed more than that, it was important to Woodrow Wilson that, as he said in his Declaration of War speech to Congress, that the world must be made safe for democracy. And he presented 14 points for which he believed the United States had to go to war. It was a moral imperative, if you will, with Woodrow Wilson. We went to that war. He managed it brilliantly. He turned out to be an extremely good commander-in-chief. He mobilized what was basically an isolationist country with an army at that point the size of that of Portugal. And we went in and we really won the war. Now, the main reason Wilson wanted to win that war was that so we could also dictate the peace. And there's where the story that you're talking about begins, because the president of the United States, as you suggest, left this country for over six months. He had one quick visit home in between. But from December of 1918 until July of 1919, the President of the United States was in Paris, France. When the war was won, Wilson sailed for France to receive there a heartfelt welcome. At the peace conference, he worked tirelessly to weld the covenant of the League of Nations into the Versailles Treaty. Where's he living? He is living actually in, in a, he was borrowing, he was offered a little palace uh, by a count over there in in France. So he lived uh, for half the time over there, and then he moved into a second residence that was given to him. Uh, the government of France insisted on picking up the tab, although Wilson felt we should be paying for it, but Clemenceau insisted on that. So that's where he lived. He came with 
with a very small personal entourage, but there was a very large diplomatic team that came over there. And it was a remarkable team. It included young Franklin Roosevelt, young Herbert Hoover. It included two or three men who would then become secretaries of state, such as John Foster Dulles and Christian Herter. They were all these young, um, aspiring diplomats. And there they were in Paris, along with representatives of every thought, every faction, every nation in the world. Everybody flocked to Paris at that time because they all wanted a hearing. They all hoped, above all, that they might even have a meeting, an audience, with Woodrow Wilson, who was called the savior of the world at that point. Now, having traveled around the world with Bill Clinton, we used to move at a comparatively languid pace. Uh, The opportunity to perhaps have a side trip for a safari or to see (laughs) a uh, historical monument or to go out that night to a jazz club in Prague, Czechoslovakia. The the pace of presidential travel quickened seriously under the presidencies of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. You can hardly have national tolerance now for the president to be out of the country for four days, let alone six months. Is there any clamor to get the president back to the nation's business, the domestic affairs of of the United States while he is with his team in Paris? Well, I think there was some growing clamor. In the beginning, there was, of course, euphoria. I mean, the United States had fought and won the greatest conflagration in the history of man. So this was quite something. And indeed, the send-off that Woodrow Wilson received when he sailed out of New York Harbor in December of 1918 was the greatest send-off this country had ever experienced, surpassed only by the arrival in Paris. When just arriving in that city, two million people turned out in a city that had a population of one million. So it was an extraordinary arrival. It was really the greatest march of triumph in history. Uh, up to that date. I mean, in fact, surpassed really only by Charles Lindbergh's arrival in Paris. But this was this was something beyond Caesar. This was something beyond Napoleon. I mean, what I try to establish at the very beginning of my book, in fact, is that such laurels had never been heaped on a single human being before. This was quite historic. And, and it's ironic, and this is one of the reasons why I want to sort of bring back what has become a somewhat forgotten figure. You talk about Wilson the man, the relationship that he had with his first wife, Ellen, and his second wife, Edith. You talk about the passions within him. You write about that. But what do the archives show? What does the research show about how he is reacting to this kind of adulation in Paris and whether he is drinking this in and enjoying and and almost intellectually reflecting on what role this makes for the United States based on the reception that the glorious president is being afforded when he gets to Paris. Well, it was difficult for him, actually. Don't forget this was a Presbyterian minister's son um, and the Presbyterian minister's grandson. And if you shake the family trees of the Woodrows and the Wilsons, I think another dozen Presbyterian ministers will fall (laughs) out of the branches. But... uh, he would, he had an innate modesty, strangely enough. Now, I should counteract that by saying Sigmund Freud wrote an entire book about Woodrow Wilson, did a study of him in which he talked about his incredible Christ complex. So I would say the truth is somewhere in between. 
But but the difficult thing for Wilson is he realized, he knew that the entire world was basically placing all its hopes on his shoulders because this horrible war, the likes of which the world had never seen, had just been fought. People really pinned all their dreams on Wilson that maybe, as had been said throughout the war, this could be, if, if we followed Wilson's prescription, the war to end all wars. And part of the reason Wilson went over there in dictating the peace was to come up with new new establishment of human rights. So every labor group, every ethnic group, everybody wanted somehow to have a piece of this pie. And basically, they were expecting Woodrow Wilson to fix the entire world. Wilson knew these were impossible expectations. He could only do so much, and he could only do the best that he could do. The president returned to America and knew acclaim from his own people. Still more honors were heaped upon him. For his labors for peace, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. But his endeavors had taken a severe toll. Although in health, the president continued to toil with his remaining energies for lasting world peace. So he comes back in June of 1918. Uh, what, does, what is he carrying in his satchel? He is carrying in his satchel a peace treaty that two dozen nations had agreed upon. And there it was. It was, even by Wilson's admission, an imperfect treaty. But it did contain the 14th of his 14 points, which was the establishment of a League of Nations. Now, here's where the trouble and here's where the real drama begins. Wilson, being a constitutional scholar, knew that he could help draft the peace, but that doesn't make it automatic. Only the Senate has the power to ratify a treaty, and so he had to sell this to an increasingly hostile Republican Senate, and they just weren't buying it. And, and I think a large measure of that, a very large measure, was strictly political, that they had seen the Democrats, they had seen Wilson really win the war. Now, by God, they were not going to let him win the peace exactly. So with Wilson coming home with this thing, I found, in fact, going through the papers, um, I found that the Republicans had been conspiring for months, agreeing that whatever Wilson brought back, they were against it didn't matter what he said, what he carried. They weren't buying it. As they say in L.A., ripped from the headlines. <laughs> Stories that we see playing over and over again, even to this very month. It's just unbelievable. And I don't I don't want to be glib about it, but I honestly think the hostility between Democrats and Republicans was even worse in 1919 than they are today. Somewhat inflicted by Wilson's arrogance and and petulance? I think there's some truth to that. It's it's quite interesting because Wilson was all for cooperation and quite literally, I mean, co-operation of the government between the legislature and the presidency while he was in office. Real parliamentarian. Very much so. In fact, I have often suggested he didn't really want to be the president of the United States. He really wanted to be the prime minister. Uh, and and he really wanted to work with the, the legislative body. But as we now got into this thing, into the peace treaty, into the possible creation of a League of Nations, Wilson really threw all sense of compromise, all sense of conversation even, out the window. He wanted this thing. He thought this was the only way to justify the deaths of 100,000 Americans whose death warrants he believed he had signed 
when he led this country into war. I've never encountered another U.S. president, anyway, who so much took the responsibility for the soldiers he condemned to their deaths. President Woodrow Wilson was resolved to prevent another world war. He returned from Europe determined to get the United States to accept the covenant of the League of Nations. But he met powerful opposition in the Senate, where it was said that entering the League meant surrendering America's national interests. So in September 1919, President Wilson embarked on a 10,000-mile campaign to sell the American people on the merits of the League of Nations. If America does not join, he said, there will be a second world war. The strain of the 28-day whirlwind campaign started to tell on the president. He grew visibly thin and gray. He became subject to dizzy spells. Finally, he collapsed. So, Scott Berg, author of Wilson, enter, I suspect, retail politics. The need to take your case directly to the American people, but do it in an age without radio, without television. So what do you do? What are your options? Your options are quite limited uh, and hindered even more with a doctor saying, Mr. President, you are just not in a physical state. Carrie Grayson, what did he know about Wilson's physical well-being? He, he knew Dr. Carrie T. Grayson, who was not only Wilson's personal physician, but also a close friend and became something of an advisor. Who really, he re- really was one or two people in the presidential entourage. He knew that the president had advancing arteriosclerosis. He sensed, we know a lot more about this today. In my book, A Hundred Years Later, I could chronicle that, in fact, there had been a series of small strokes in Wilson's life going back to his late 30s and early 40s. This was a man in a very compromised physical condition. And now, Wilson, realizing the Senate is not going to pass this treaty, figures he will sidestep the Senate and go to the people, which unfortunately was in the summer So it's beastly hot because Wilson wants to take this case to the Midwest and the West. It's going to be done because it's the pre-plane era. He's going to have to do this by unair-conditioned train cars, which are basically steel ovens. So the president, uh, who is having who's had frail health all his life anyway, and now has this advancing hardening of the arteries, is now going to embark on a 29-city tour where he is going to deliver four to five speeches a day and then move on to the next city. Uh, Well, this was really a daunting challenge. As I suggest in the book, you know, had it been just a few years, even two years later, when radio was in virtually every house in the country, Wilson could have just sat by a fireside and had a little chat with the public. But this was not to be. He really had to take his case to the people. So this sets up for me, Scott, the ultimate conversation because it is the mother of all presidential trips. Uh, and I'm talking to one of the greatest writers of American biography, and I am a, a longtime presidential advance man. So <laughs> decisions are made in the White House between Joseph Tumulty, uh, Dr. Grayson, President Wilson, Mrs. Wilson. How is this trip planned in advance and advanced? Or does he just go to Union Station, get in the Mayflower, and go? He went to Union Station, but there had been a a small team. And indeed, these are the days where the entire White House staff, you could count on two hands. I mean, it was a very different place in the West Wing. So off they went. There wasn't a West Wing at the time, right? (laughs) Exactly. And Wilson was... Well, actually, they had just built one. 
And and Wilson is actually spending a lot of his time up on Capitol Hill, right? Very much so. This was all part of his notion of cooperation of government. Wilson, you know, to remind your audience, Wilson was the first president in over 110 years to bring back the State of the Union address. That is, the president used to write the address and, and a clerk would read it. Uh, in the houses of Congress. Wilson was the one who wanted to, again, humanize, personalize the institution of the presidency. And so he was the first one to show up and give the speech each year. Whenever Wilson had an important legislative measure to pass, he would call a joint session of Congress. 25 times he did this. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then he would show up. There's a little office in the, in the Capitol called the President's Room, which no president before or since has really used other than Woodrow Wilson. And that was to sit there and grab senators as they walk off the floor and, and discuss things with them, sometimes give them a little history lesson, sometimes really twist their arms, sometimes blackmail them, you know, and say, uh, you, you've got a, a lot of post postal clerks, you know, you know, that you want to give jobs to. Well, it all starts here in this president's room. And so that's what Wilson did. So in answer to your question, the advanced team uh, had they had carefully selected the Midwest, the West, the far West, because they felt that was the most progressive part of the country. They felt that was the part of the country most open to new ideas. And indeed, that was the part of the country that helped Wilson win his reelection in 1916. Also, uh, that was the part of the country where women were just starting to vote. And the women were very much on the side of peace. And the notion of a League of Nations was a much had much more feminine appeal than masculine appeal. So another component of a presidential trip that I always think about when I when I plan one is you need the president, you need his doctor, Grayson, you need his sort of quasi-chief of staff, Joseph Tumulty. Good to bring your family, uh, Edith, but also you should bring the press corps in tow because without them and your Western Union Telegraph man, hard to get the messages out back to the New York Times and, and other re papers reporting on the president's travels. That's exactly right because... You know, in this day, all news was still very local. Uh, and so you really did need need to do what you just suggested. And it was the first major press tour. And there was a whole train car filled with the press. Uh, and as you said, the telegrapher, who was basically going to tap out this message to the rest of the world. And, and it was the greatest, really, presidential tour. I'm, nobody had ever done this before. And it's also, I think of it as the most quixotic venture that any president have, had ever gone on. It was really the quite, quite the most noble in that this was not for personal aggrandizement. This was the first and maybe last time a president really put his life on the line to fight for a cause it was just a belief. It was an ideal. It was just something that he thought would truly better the world. So, Scott Berg, first, first stop, you, you leave Washington, you get, uh, you, you, you're on the train tracks for a while. Columbus, Ohio, 4,000 people at Memorial Hall. And this question comes up again and again as I'm reading the book, and you, we talk about it a little bit uh, at one of the stops, I think, in San Diego. But <clears throat> how does a man in Wilson's uh, physical condition, project his voice and make a compelling argument to a hall of 4,000 people. 
Well, the old-fashioned way, uh, you play to the balconies. You, as every voice teacher would say, you project. But as the tour went on, they got a little more sophisticated electronically, and they were trying out new gizmos everywhere, little telephone um, microphone things. And in a couple of cities, they, they built like a little glass box around him, and they had, they had really the... the prototype of speakers in a couple of stadiums. Uh, In some places, he would talk into a telephone-like instrument that could be projected to other parts of either the auditorium or even to other venues. So all this was, was quite experimental in some ways. But as a result, it reached the point where in the occasional venue, he could talk to 10 or 20,000 people at a time, which was quite remarkable. And then, as you pointed out, we've got this press corps that is covering this tour, really capturing every word of Woodrow Wilson. And I should add here as well Woodrow Wilson was the last president to write all his own speeches. And in this case, on most, you know, again, three, four, sometimes five times a day giving speeches, he didn't even write the speeches. He was the greatest orator of the day. People would then get down what he said so we could read the texts of the speeches. But in fact, he would simply walk out there on a stage with a piece of paper with five bullet points and he would then just extemporize for an hour. And I, having gone through the transcripts of these speeches, never found a single grammatical error, never found a sentence out of place, never found a paragraph that didn't logically follow its predecessor. He was just an incredible orator with a beautiful voice, very stirring. And in fact, he was moving the hearts and minds of this country. The tour continues on to St. Louis, Missouri, the president and the Mayflower uh, train is met by thousands of school kids waving American flags. Again, this sort of gets to the core of the work on of, of campaign and presidential stagecraft. Are these the <clears throat> the fingerprints of the White House and the advance team making this spectacle, getting ready for the president to arrive, or is this the natural outpouring of the municipality of St. Louis? Well, it was a little of both, but it was actually more the latter. Because the farther west Wilson got and the deeper into the tour he got, not only the more effective was he getting, but really the snowball was rolling now. So his popularity on this tour was getting bigger and moving faster. Uh, And again, there weren't these huge advanced teams in those days. Now, certainly the local citizenry uh, who were in charge of things, who were in government, would try to organize some some things, you know, like thousands of school children with flags. Somebody had to give them the flags. So there is a moment where statecraft is turning to stagecraft. There's no question of that. But the Wilsonian message was really traveling, and I think that's the essence of this tour. And he gets to Des Moines, and then the ugly reality of partisan politics back in Washington catches up with the entourage. He's hearing that his primary opponent in the Senate, Henry Cabot Lodge, is beginning to make a lot of soundings, and yet Wilson's resonance and his voice and his message is beginning to turn the tide against his opponents back in Washington. No question about it. In the meantime, some of the opponents in Washington say, hey, why is the president the only one out there? So a couple of senators, especially from the far west, decided we better do a counter 
Wilson tour, and they began to put one on as well. And so Wilson was really being attacked from all sides, as as is politically fair. I mean, all is fair in love and, and politics. And there it was. Uh, and yet Wilson continued. It really forced him to get a little stronger, a little more ferocious. And one of the interesting things about Wilson is though he really had no political training other than his scholarship and having written a dozen books of political science and American history and biography, he really did have very keen political instincts. He was awfully good, and he always had this very sharp tool, which was his power of oratory. Now, you make in so many parts of Wilson a great note of the entourage that's with him, and you say that it's a very small entourage, that his wife is often with him, but that he does have these countervailing forces in Dr. Grayson and Joseph Tumulty on this trip. Tumulty might be a, the, from the, the old mold of the chief of staff. You've got to get out there. Mr. President, there's 350 people on the rail bed waiting for a wave, and can't you give them another speech? And Dr. Grayson says, Mr. President, you've got to preserve your strength. What was the tension going on in the railroad car at that point? Well, it was exactly as you defined. I mean, it, it was very much that it and superego or whatever that division is. But Tumulty was the, the ultimate Paul who really did run the Wilson White House, per se. And he did want him out there at four in the morning if they stopped in some little town in the middle of, of a wheat field. Uh, but Dr. Grayson knew better than everyone else that Wilson just couldn't do that. And in fact, as we already mentioned, Wilson, uh, Grayson didn't even want Wilson to make the trip in the first place. He really said it would kill the president. And at, as a last-ditch effort, after everybody had warned Wilson not to make it, Dr. Grayson came in to Wilson's office back in the White House. And before Grayson could even speak, Wilson said to him, I know why you're here. You can't talk me out of this trip. And basically he said, how can I not make this trip when I made 100,000 boys lose their lives? I have to give my life if that's what it takes. Yeah. And he says that in a couple of times that he will fight for this as long as he lives, this treaty that he's brought back from Paris. Repeatedly. So the trip moves on. It goes through Omaha. It goes through Sioux Falls. And it gets next to St. Paul, Minnesota. And reading your book, I this again touches another fact of old American politics and modern American politics, and they'll bleep this out, but I'll say it anyway. This is what we call the rat fuck by A.A. <laughs> Burnquist, the, yes. the local uh, uh, head of the Minnesota state legislature. What does what does Burnquist do to President Wilson? Well, basically, he snubs him, and he, he, he really wrecks the whole arrival for for President Wilson. Uh, he stalls the legislature there so they can't turn out to see him. Uh, and it was just it was just a simple political slap in the face. But what happened as a result of that is everybody really, really felt the kind of rudeness of it. And even people who hadn't necessarily been on Wilson's side could not help but admire that Wilson was out there again fighting for a cause. And it's not as if Wilson had anything to gain from it other than the betterment of mankind. 
So that was pretty good. So the public actually turned out big time for Woodrow Wilson in Minnesota. Yeah, 15,000 people at the uh, at the St. Paul Auditorium. I mean, imagine 15,000 people. I mean, when you think about Barack Obama in 2008 in the uh, the Consul Energy Center, no, it's in the St. Paul uh, Auditorium, same crowd size a uh, hundred years later for Senator Obama against against Senator McCain. It's quite amazing, really. And yet, no amplification. No Basically, amplification. Screaming at the top of your lungs, projecting to the bal- to the balcony for the fourth time that day. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing to think about. Uh, you know. And this trip has so many elements. That's why the book is so wonderful about politics back then and and politics today. So he keeps going west. He goes from North Dakota to all the way across to Washington State. He's suffering from headaches and asthma as the train is snaking its way through tunnels and over mountains and around glens. Through forest fires. Situation on the train at that point, what's it like for him? It's just sheer agony. It's increasing agony, actually. He started out with, with headaches and then twitches, and then there was problems with his vision because he had actually lost some vision decades ago from what we now realize was a was an early stroke. Uh, his voice, of course, asthma is starting to kick in. It's just, I mean, everything that could besiege a single human being began to do that, and yet he soldiers on. And he gets, I think, to uh, to the West Coast and e- experiences a mutiny by his own Secretary of State back in Washington, D.C. What happens there? Yes, he's halfway across the country just selling his heart out for this league. And he had a Secretary of State then, his second Secretary of State, a man named Robert Lansing, um, whom... Wilson never really cared much for or about. He thought he was really a rather second-rate figure. And in many ways, Wilson had been his own Secretary of State. And even though Lansing had been over in Paris as part of the United States diplomatic team, Wilson really did the work, and, and Lansing was reduced to little more than a clerk. And Lansing really didn't like the way things went in Paris, and he didn't certainly didn't like the way he was treated in Paris. So while Wilson is out there across the country, the Senate is continuing to hold its hearings, Henry Cabot Lodge doing everything he can to undermine this treaty. And there he calls upon Robert Lansing to testify and several others in the Wilson administration to comment. And Lansing put out there some very uh, incriminating and less than supportive statements about the League. Uh, and, And these also came through some other underlings in the government. And here's the president who really thought he was giving a gift to Lansing by making him Secretary of State. And now he is being undermined by this man. And it's it's just yet another thing heaped upon Wilson that he has to deal with. Meanwhile, Dr. Grayson is keeping his eye on his boss, and he's seeing saliva beginning to sort of droop from his lips a little bit. The exactly. president's frailty continuing to decline, getting worse, and you and, and visibly worse. Uh, yes, I mean the headaches are getting so severe. Even Wilson, who was not a complainer, 
would call them blinding headaches. I mean, literally, he just could not see because of these headaches. They were so excruciating. And he's having great trouble breathing. He always had problem with his digestion anyway. And so now everything is just starting to kick in. And he's a, he's a walking time bomb, basically. He gets to San Diego. 30,000 people turn out. Or, uh, and I'm wondering, you know, are there even 30,000 people living in San Diego at the time? Maybe there probably are. In your research on this trip, beside the speech making and the physical struggles that he dealt with, were there any moments of, of joy or off-the-record things or moments that, that were just were heartwarming and happy for him or was this all just a struggle? It was mostly a struggle. The good news is he, who had lost his first wife in the White House, Ellen, was able to fall in love, court, and marry a second woman, an attractive young widow who lived in Washington named Edith Bowling Galt. He took great pride and pleasure in his second wife, and she was there with him. So that was a great comfort to him. Also, he had one day off in Los Angeles where he saw an old friend of his first wife, Ellen, and that was a rather touching, heartwarming moment. And there he also met up with another woman named Mary Peck. And this was a woman who for years, many people imagined the president had had a love affair with. Uh, It's something that some biographers say he did, some say he didn't. I really researched this as closely as anything in the book, and I've come to the conclusion that they had an emotional affair, but not a physical one. There, There's a, just a, a, a trunkload full of letters between them. Uh, Ellen Wilson knew about their friendship, certainly. Uh, she, she said on her own deathbed that the only the only moment of sadness in their marriage had been revolved around Mrs. Peck. And even she, though, did not suggest it was a physical affair. It was just that at a moment in the Wilson marriage when they were not all that close, Mrs. Wilson suffering from a depression of her own, uh, the president seemed to find some real emotional comfort from Mrs. Peck. And and so they did have this one visit where she came to visit uh, while they were in Los Angeles. She had moved out to Los Angeles under very reduced circumstances from what she once had been, which was a rather glamorous hostess in Bermuda. And it was a rather painful moment because she was really broke, really didn't know. She could barely live, really. And it was just sort of, it was just painful and a bit touching. Right. Back on the political side, you're in Los Angeles. You're talking to 200,000 people. Uh, You have uh, Harry Chandler, the uh, scion of the Chandler family, the owner of the Los Angeles Times, a a deep conservative uh, as he is. But even he has to admit that President Wilson has won over the Golden State, perhaps beginning and cementing the legacy for the progressive or liberal domination of the state of California for the president. Exactly. As he said, this is Wilson country now. And then the trek, I guess they go up to Sacramento, but then uh, begin the move back east, the slow move back east. And they end up after, I think, uh, um, Salt Lake City, Cheyenne, at the famous Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, where I stayed once with President Clinton. Uh, And he's got to head down to Pueblo, Colorado. Why does he take that spur down to Pueblo? Well, this uh, was, again, it was a, a... 
political town, so it was good, and Puebla was on the way home. So, I mean, it was a, it was something a little more than a minor train stop. And also, Pueblo had just opened a brand new auditorium, and they had requested that the president might make a stop there so that he might be the first person to speak in the Pueblo auditorium. And indeed, he did, and he gave what I consider the most moving speech on the entire tour because he was now really falling apart. He stumbled walking up the steps to get to the stage. He he stumbled in his syntax for one of the few times. And even the reporters who had heard Wilson do, at this point, 40, 50 variations on his speeches really heard him falling apart sometimes and not quite making sense sometimes. The Secret Service agent who was assigned to him was really standing poised to catch him. He was so convinced the president was just going to collapse. But he muscled his way through and gave one of the most moving finales to a speech ever given. This is the story of uh, of Edmund Starling, the president's Secret Service uh, agent, uh, the detail leader. How do you put, how do you, as you're writing, Scott, weave in the stuff you're able to discover about what a Secret Service agent needs to do to to fit it in with the rest of the narrative that you have? Well, I, I find that it becomes an important thread. You know, I often think of myself as a weaver, and I'm running all sorts of threads. There are some big threads that are your main themes, and then there's some minor ones that go across that. They're usually elements of character. So you have you have that fabric being knitted, but then sometimes you have to put in some just little slender threads, such as, well, here's here's the Secret Service agent who's there every day watching him, protecting him. So I'm interested in what he's got to say. So I, I, I also often think of biographers as choral directors. It's sort of my job to bring in as many voices as I can and to modulate them according to their importance. So at leaving Pueblo for Rocky Ford, uh, President Wilson has one of the worst nights uh, he has on the trip. What happens? He has, I would say, even the worst night of his life because it's at this point he really just starts to collapse. And it happens in every way. But, but physically, he, the head is just throbbing. He can barely see. He can barely breathe. His digestion is terrible, and the doctor comes in and just says, this is it. We've just got to call this to an end. Wilson begs him not to say that. He, Wilson says, I'm not a quitter. I can't do that. I can't let the boys down. I've got to keep going. And finally, Dr. Grayson summons Tumulty, the old Paul who wants him out there to give every speech, and Mrs. Wilson, who never wanted him to make the trip in the first place. And they all agree the president has to go home. This must end. So stops are canceled in Wichita, Oklahoma City, Little Rock, Memphis, Louisville. They will not benefit from the uh, from the message that President Wilson wants to bring. They will not be able to be sold on the, on the, uh, the Treaty of Versailles and the creation of the League of Nations. Instead, President Wilson gets directly back via the Mayflower and the train uh, to Union Station and is really back in the White House within 48 hours. And what what was it like? It was probably the end of September, early October. What's it now like for the for President Wilson, who a year ago had just left for Paris, uh, six months prior had had come back. He had been on this month long journey. 
What is the condition of the man as he gets back to the second floor of the executive mansion? He is a ghost of the man that he had been just a few weeks earlier, to say nothing of a year earlier. He's, he's barely recognizable. And indeed, within a few days, he suffers from a stroke, a genuine, recognizable, certifiable stroke. The strain of the 28-day whirlwind campaign started to tell on the president. He grew visibly thin and gray. He became subject to dizzy spells. Finally, he collapsed. Repeated strokes immobilized him for the remaining 17 months of his presidency. The Senate voted against the league. The president had lost his gallant fight. During his last year and a half in office, Mrs. Wilson shielded the ailing president from contact with practically everyone. Now, we won't get to it in great detail, Scott Berg, but... Uh, we enter now a famous part of the presidency. Uh, he is—he really has about a year and a half to go until he needs to leave the White House. The election will be in about a year, but he will not uh, pass the baton to his successor until March 1921. So we're still in October, November of 1919. Uh, what happens in this intervening period between that terrible stroke and the end of his term? Well, what happens is what I characterize as the greatest conspiracy in the history of the White House, which is Mrs. Wilson and a handful of doctors basically conspire to keep the president's condition a stroke. Now, he could still think and speak, but he was very weak, very compromised, and paralyzed on his left side. They conspire to keep that a secret from the world. Only a handful of people know the extent of the president's deterioration. Virtually nobody is allowed to see the president of the United States. He can certainly do no work for several weeks and then into a few months even. And what little work can be done is all passed through Mrs. Wilson. And it has been alleged, and I, of course, chronicle this in great detail in the biography, but it has been said that Mrs. Wilson, Edith Bolingalt Wilson, became the first female president of the United States. I would say um, she considered herself more of a steward of the government, that she did nothing the president wouldn't have done. Uh, she really served more as a gatekeeper, a chief of staff, if you will. And yet, she is the person who kept the executive branch of this government rolling day to day. So to that extent, she really did serve as a kind of chief executive. President Wilson considered for a while resigning upon the death of his first wife, Ellen, so distraught over her death, and yet continued to serve in office. Uh, and here he is at the end of his cross-country tour, a terribly debilitating stroke, able, as you say, to think and speak, but confined to his bedroom. What consideration was given at this point to end the presidency and resign early? Well, it was discussed, but not very deeply. Um, the logical succession would have been to inform the vice president of the United States, which they did not do for quite a while. The great legend in Washington, and this was told to me years ago by Alice Roosevelt Longworth, 
um, and she said it so convincingly, I'm sure she was lying. But the great rumor in Washington was that when somebody finally did break the news to the vice president, Thomas R. Marshall of Indiana, that he fainted. (laughs) So this was a man who himself did not want to be president of the United States. That being said, Who's to say he might not have risen to something? Who's to say that Thomas R. Marshall might not have become Harry Truman? That once the light was on him, he might have shown? Who knows? But he was never given that opportunity. And again, it's an opportunity he didn't even want. And so what had happened was the doctors came to Mrs. Wilson and said, look, any stress is going to be harmful to the president. It will be fatal to the president. Mrs. Wilson said... But that's what a president's job is. It's nothing but stress. That's why we elect a president, so everybody can pile his stress onto the president. But the doctor said, no, you've been following the president wherever he's been since you've been married to him. He's been sharing memorandums with you. You know everything that's going on in his mind. Why don't you make these decisions? Why don't you decide what the president sees and acts upon each day? Why don't you decide which visitors are worthy of an actual face-to-face encounter with the president, which he began to have after a few months? And indeed, that is what ended up being the case, and that is how the Wilson White House functioned for the last year and a half. So Scott Berg, author of Wilson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Lindbergh, we are gathered for this conversation in New York City with the UN General Assembly happening outside our door. We've been witness over the past weeks and months to a struggle between the chief executive and Congress uh, over the the debt ceiling, over Obamacare, a struggle on his part to make the case for intervention in Syria, uh, and so many other things, Scott Berg. What are the lessons that Americans today can take from the age of Wilson and that Barack Obama himself can take from Woodrow Wilson? Well, I think there are a few lessons. The first, I think, is what Wilson entered office with, and that was this great spirit of cooperation. I think it really is essential. The second, I think, is one must bear in mind, and and with that sense of cooperation, I was going to say, is, is the notion of sustained dialogue, having an ongoing conversation with a legislature. Then, above that, I think there needs to be a sense of compromise on both sides. And indeed, the League of Nations did not pass in the end because Woodrow Wilson would not budge. He would not give an inch. And toward the very end of the great debate, just before the last of the last votes was going to come about, the Republicans did offer a compromise that that really didn't alter things that much. And had Wilson taken that inch, I think he could have attained his entire mile, but he didn't. But finally, I think the great message of Woodrow Wilson is is this spirit of idealism that really infused everything he ever said or did, certainly in the presidency and even before that. It was genuine. It was unselfish. Uh, This was a man who really uh, had the cleanest government, maybe in the history of the nation. And it was really all for ideals. And he always said ideals are more important than ideas. Scott Berg, you come from a very connected uh, Hollywood family. Um, Your books are often uh, very quick 
on the on the deal table <laughs> to be turned into uh, potential movie scripts and films. And most recently, it was announced uh, even before so many people have been able to to look through the 800 pages of Wilson that Warner Brothers has acquired your book uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio attached. I, for one, am looking forward to seeing how whatever director is selected figures out how to visualize this 29 uh, city tour. Uh, what are the thoughts that go through your head and your team's head about how you turn these biographies into works of, of film? Well, I think there's a through line, and that is that I believe motion pictures, and I believe what I do in my biographies, which are written in a rather cinematic style, they're highly visual books, we basically do the same thing, which is tell a story. And uh, when I sit down with screenwriters, especially when they're writing about actual figures, about biographical you know, books, um, I basically say, throw away the person's name. Forget that it's Woodrow Wilson. Forget that he was president of the United States for a moment. We know we've got that in the bank. We know that this is the story of a man who changed the century. Now, that aside, tell me the human story. What was going on with this man and his, and his first wife dying? What was going on when he courted and fell in love a second time? What was going on when he goes on that 29-city tour knowing he probably won't live through it? And if he does, he's going to come home extremely compromised. Well, that's high drama. doesn't matter who it is. Now, attached to that, that it's Woodrow Wilson, and indeed he was fighting for maybe the noblest cause in the history of man, namely that we fought the war to end all wars. That, to me, seems like a good movie. DiCaprio has been uh, has been Howard Hughes. He's been Jay Gatsby. Is there something about him in Appian Way that says he wants to look for historic figures to, to portray about the stagecraft or about the, the costume work or about the, the, the uh, production design that is attractive to him as an actor? I, th- I really shouldn't speak for him, but I think, at least as a viewer um, and as a student of his films, I would say two things. I think he looks for roles of intelligence because he has great intelligence himself, and I think also of heart. Uh, he, he's a very good romantic figure because I think he really sells that, and I think that's essential to playing Woodrow Wilson, heart and mind. Scott Berg, author of Wilson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Lindbergh, thank you so much for joining me on Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Thank you.